good morning, church. My name is Joe McKechnie, and I am so blessed to be your pastor here at Chapel Roswell. We are wrapping up our series known as Advent. We've been talking about Advent for a while. Our theme during Advent has been follow, because the truth is, whether you agree or not, whether you like it or not, whether you think about it or not, each of us is following something. Something may lead us to life eternal. Something may lead us down a different path. Sports Illustrated. Sports Illustrated called it the basketball shot that saved lives. The basketball shot that saved lives. How, how in the world could that be? Let me take you back to the year 2008. The basketball tournament that they were speaking of was the SEC basketball tournament. It was going on at the Georgia Dome. A Friday night game, a second round game between Mississippi State they were taking on Alabama. The winner would stay alive for a spot in March Madness, the NCAA Basketball Championship Tournament. Now, no one ever could have imagined that real lives, literally real lives, hung in the balance as this basketball game proceeded to the final whistle. Here's how things went down, okay? The Mississippi State Bulldogs, they were the heavy favorites. They were leading by three points with only a handful of seconds left to play. Alabama was bringing the ball up court. Mississippi State had a simple defensive tactic. All they wanted to do was foul Alabama. Okay, if you can foul Alabama, get them to the free throw line. They can only make two buckets. They, they can't hit a free throw or a three-point shot, and they're down by three. So the Mississippi State players tried in vain to foul all of the Alabama players, knowing that two free throws, they weren't going to be enough for the Crimson Tide to stage a comeback. But the fouls were never called. The Mississippi State coach was furious. Usually you don't like when a referee calls a foul against your team. He was the opposite. He was incredulous. How come you're not calling us? How come you're not calling the fouls that we're committing on Alabama? Now, by that point, Alabama fans were re resigned really to the fact that they were going to lose this nail-biter of a game. They started to stream out of the entrances or the exits, and they were going to head out onto the streets in front of the Georgia Dome. It's interesting, though, because something miraculous happened. With two seconds left, Alabama had the ball. The inbounds passed. They're down by three. There was a lucky pass that was made to a guy who was momentarily wide open. Okay, he took the ball, Mikhail Riley. He caught the pass easily. The Bulldogs defender swatted at him. That was an obvious foul that inexplicably wasn't called by the referee. Riley turned while falling to his left. He released a three-point shot the split second before the buzzer went off. The shot hit the rim, and it bounced straight up into the air. It bounced back down off the backboard, then incredibly around the hoop, and then finally drained through. That three-point shot forced overtime. Fans who had been heading toward the exits all of a sudden realized, wait a second, the basketball game's still going on. Let's turn around. Let's go back to our seats. And so that's what they did. So now the Georgia Dome was, was packed again with people wanting to see Mississippi State and Alabama playing basketball. And that's, my friends, when things turned nasty. Not inside, mind you, but, but rather outside. 
You see, eight minutes later, only two minutes into the overtime period, eight minutes after the game ended, two minutes into the overtime period, the roof of the Georgia Dome started to shake violently. It sounded like a freight train was right on top of it, bearing down on the stadium. The first instinct of many of the fans was that this was some sort of terrorist act. But the culprit was none other than Mother Nature. Debris fell from the roof. A portion of the side wall ripped away. Even the scoreboard began to shift and sway wildly above the crowd. You see, right then, an F2 tornado was right on top of the Georgia Dome. Deadly winds peaking at 135 miles per hour were right outside the door. There were several tense moments in which everyone was frozen in their paths, not knowing what to do not knowing where to go next. Once word spread that the danger had passed, those in attendance in the Georgia Dome, they came to this stunning, life-saving opportunity, this life-saving realization. Had Mikhail Riley's shot not fallen, thousands of the fans would be streaming out into the streets right in front of the Georgia Dome, right in that tornado's path instead of safely secure being inside the arena. Thank goodness the referees overlooked those two obvious fouls and allowed play to continue. Thank goodness that the Mississippi defense overlooked an open Alabama player. Thank goodness that the Crimson Tide forward made an unbelievable shot. Thank goodness the game went into overtime. Meteorologists claim that there could have been, quote, catastrophic, catastrophic loss of life had the game ended in regulation. It didn't end up the way folks thought that it would. Instead, friends, something life-saving took place. That's the good news of the gospel. That's the Christmas story that we read about this morning, that lives have been spared, eternities have been transformed, lives have been changed. Something life-changing, life-saving, taking place through the birth of a tiny baby. And you know what? Something still life-saving taking place in your life and in my life right here and right now. Over the past three weeks, we've been commemorating the season known as Advent. That's the four weeks that leads up to Christmas. Christmas on the Christian calendar is not just one day. It literally is a 12-day season. So that song, The 12 Days of Christmas, that actually is pretty theologically accurate. It is a 12-day season. The word Advent, it's a Latin word that means arrival. You see, for the longest time, people were waiting on the Advent, the arrival of the Messiah, the arrival of the one whom God would send to save the world, the Messiah, the anointed one, the Christ. Now, many assume that he would come in the form of a mighty warrior on a white stallion to fend off the Roman Empire, but instead he broke into the darkness with light in the form of a tiny, helpless baby. It's by the word advent that we get the word adventure, because the adventure is this journey that we're on as God continually woos us and calls us to follow him to where he wants us to go. God was ushering in the perfect time for his perfect plan, for his perfect son, for the perfect sacrifice 
for a hurting world. Now, three Sundays ago, we lit our first of our Advent candles. We have four candles up here, and then we have what we call the Christ candle. That's the, the big candle in the middle. And let's see, I lost my little uh, lighter. I think it's over here. Each of the candles on the Advent wreath represents something. Four weeks ago, we, we lit the candle. That candle represents hope. How is God bringing about hope to your life? The second candle we lit represents peace. How is it that God is calling you to live out peace in your life and peace in our time? The third candle is a candle of joy. We lit this last week. Remember the song, Joy to the World. We speak of the joy that we experience because of the tiny baby being born because of God's love for you and for me. And then finally, we light the candle of love to show us the amazing love that God has for you and for me. And then on Christmas Eve or Christmas Day, in this case, Christmas Eve Eve, seems like a logical time to light the Christ candle. You can see the symbolism of light, the light overtaking the darkness. It's during the season of Advent that we are especially mindful of the light, the light that God sent down in the form of Jesus. The light overtakes the darkness. It overpowers the evil. In a matter of minutes, in fact, we'll lower the lights in the sanctuary and we'll light one candle, one solitary candle, and that candle will be passed on to another and that to another and that to another. And before you know it, it will be beautiful in here with all of these candles lit and that light, my friends, overtaking, overcoming the darkness because that's what Christ has come to do in your life and in mine, to see his presence overtake, overcome the darkness. We can see the, the light of our star. That's the star that we are called to follow. Like I said, each of us is following something. In your life, when you wake up every morning, you get dressed and your feet hit the floor and you say, okay, today I am going to do blank. How do you decide what you're going to do? How is your agenda set? Who are you going to follow? What are you going to follow? I pray that we're going to follow Christ. We're going to follow the direction that leads to life eternal. Because the truth is, we have a choice when it comes to that choice of direction. But then even once we choose the direction, we have the continual choice to keep following that right direction or the opposite, which is to go in a radical direction or maybe even just to stay stuck. You see, friends, through the birth of Jesus, God went to great lengths to demonstrate the love that he has for us, to restore relationship, to bring about his presence in a way that met the world at the point of its deepest need and hurt. Over the past couple of weeks, you could say that we have been looking at Christmas B.C., B.C. meaning before Christ. 
Because let's face it, we've focused on the prophecy that was spoken about the upcoming birth of Christ, the prophecy written more than 700 years before Jesus was actually born. Then an angel of the Lord giving a, a bold proclamation to Joseph. To paraphrase, the angel is saying, now, now, now Joseph, I know this seems scandalous. I know this is so incredibly overwhelming, but trust that God is doing something mighty in and mighty through your wife, Mary. Let's read from the Gospel of Matthew together. Matthew chapter 1, we're going to start with verse 21. Mary will give birth to a son, and you are to give him the name Jesus, because he will save his people from their sins. Now, first, we see instructions about the name to be given for Jesus. This is really important stuff, okay? After all, a lot of names could have been thrown out. A lot of names could have been suggested or recommended. But God chose the name Jesus specifically for a purpose. You see, the name Jesus essentially is a form of the Hebrew name Joshua, which means God is salvation. If you know anyone named Joshua, go up and freak them out and say, hey, your name means God is salvation. See what they say to that. Jesus and Joshua, kind of one and the same in different languages. Now, let's jump ahead to the next verse. Chapter 1, verse 22. All of this took place, okay, so, so we're hearing this powerful stuff that's going to happen. We know that it's prophetic. We know that it came from somewhere. From where, though? All of this took place to fulfill what the Lord had said through the prophet. Here's a trick question. If you were here over the last couple of weeks, what prophet? Isaiah. That's right. We looked at Isaiah the last two weeks. Isaiah, writing in about 723 B.C., foretold of the coming Messiah, the Anointed One, the Christ. 723 years before Jesus was born, the, the, the prophet Isaiah foretold what would happen, and you know what? History proved him right. So, so now, let's go to verse 23. The virgin will conceive and give birth to a son. They will call him Emmanuel, which means God with us. Now, last week, I, I added a word in there. Anybody remember what fourth word I added to God with us? What was it? Strong, very well done. Okay, the word Emmanuel literally, literally means strong God with us. Okay, not, not just a pagan God off in the cosmos somewhere, not just some pagan God out in the darkness somewhere. No, our strong God with us. Emmanuel is not a name, but rather it's a description. It speaks of God's promise, of God's assurance, of God's strength, of God's might, of God's tenderness. God humbled himself purposely, replacing the throne for a manger. Kind of counterintuitive, isn't it? He exchanged heaven for a, a messed up, broken, sinful world. Why? So that he could say, God is with you. No longer will darkness hide the light. No longer will fear overpower hope. No longer will doubt overshadow joy. No longer will death rob us of life. The scandal of Christmas 
The scandal of Christmas, friends, is that the creator of the universe would come into the world as a helpless newborn. On a starry night in Bethlehem over 2,000 years ago, God with skin invaded the darkness to offer us his gift of eternal life. One of the most important things we have to realize about Scripture, and it's sometimes hard to do that in our me culture, but we have to realize that Scripture is not primarily about us. Rather, it's about God who created this perfect world that humanity corrupted. Scripture is about a God who chose to send His Son, His only Son, into that world to rescue us, to redeem us, to pay for at cost, to rescue, to save the ones he created. In the midst of darkness and overwhelming sadness, our Redeemer came in the form of a child to provide new life. Let me introduce you to a couple of friends of mine. They both have the same name. They're both named Harry, Harry the Goldfish. They're smart little fellas. You know why that is, don't you? Fish are, are really smart because they travel in schools. But let's try that again. Fish are really smart because they travel in schools. Okay, we're not gonna go for a third time. Okay. Now, Harry and his buddy, Harry, Harry and Harry, they live in a fishbowl on water, in water, on a nightstand. Every so often the water has to be added and the fishbowl has to be kind of emptied out of some debris. And every once in a while the water has to be changed. On a fairly regular basis, Harry and his friend Harry has to be fed from above. Imagine, if you will, that Harry the fish could talk. What would you think the first words out of Harry's mouth would be if he could talk? Maybe he would say something like this. You know what? A caretaker is entirely unnecessary for me. I can get by on my own. If I had heard that from Harry's the fish, I would think that's not completely true. You're, you're totally dependent upon the one out here. He's the one who feeds you, who replaces your water, who makes sure that you're safe and secure. The caretaker sets up and maintains a suitable environment for which you live. The caretaker pr protects Harry and Harry from all kinds of problems that fish don't even know exist. The fish has no idea what's beyond the bowl, but the creator does, and we protect Harry and Harry from that. He doesn't realize that everything is totally dependent on the care of this caretaker, on the goodwill of the owner. And I share this because very often, many of us have this fishbowl mentality that we look at our lives as if everything we need is right there. We're ingenious and so we're smart and we make things happen. We're hard workers and we're good folks and so things naturally fall into our laps. But the truth is, how often do we go through life not realizing the fact that we truly do depend on God? We truly do depend on someone and someone bigger than ourselves. 
So how does God demonstrate that to people who don't quite get it? How in the world can we show Harry and Harry that they aren't alone, that there's someone whom God has sent to take care of them, to provide for them? How do we do that in our messed up, broken, hurting world? How did God show us the way? Remember, Jesus didn't come just to show us the way. The scripture says, I am the way. I've got an idea. Bear with me for a second. So the caretaker sent someone else into their world. In our case, God sent Jesus, the word Emmanuel, God with us. God became one of us. Jesus, fully human yet fully divine. Why? Sure, to lead by example. Sure, to show us the way. Sure, to teach and to preach and to heal. But ultimately, Jesus was born into this hurting world so that he would die. He would have to die to take away the sin of the world, allowing us, you and me, to have a right and restored relationship with the perfect and loving Heavenly Father. Friends, we celebrate the historical fact that Jesus was born about 2,000 years ago, but the good news is not just historical, rather it should be personal. You may believe in God, but do you really honestly, with all your heart, believe in this whole concept of Emmanuel, God with us, that you are not an afterthought to God, that God's not just out here walking past you and your little existence in the fishbowl, but rather God is an active player in your life, in your world, in your relationships, in your marriage, in your parenting, in your work, in your relationships. That the Lord through Christ poured out his amazing and his eternal love. You may believe in a God in heaven, but do you believe in a God who's at work in this world and in your life right here, right now? Because I truly, I truly hope that you do. Again, the scandal of Christmas is that the creator of the universe would come into the world as a helpless newborn. On a starry morning in Bethlehem 2,000 years ago, God with skin invaded the darkness to offer us his gift of eternal life. And friends, as we gather together to worship this morning, My prayer is not that we simply commemorate the birth of Jesus, as important as that is, but rather we would live out the presence of a Savior. Will you pray with me? Dear Heavenly Father, we thank you for the gift of Jesus. And through the birth of a tiny baby who was born into a dark and dangerous world, you went to great lengths to show your love to a hurting humanity. You wanted to see a relationship with you restored, and through our faith in Jesus, you make this possible. 
that, Lord God, you extend the invitation to receive the gift of grace. It's a love. It's a forgiveness. It's not merited. It's not earned. It can't be achieved. It's not deserved. But rather, it's a love that is freely poured out upon us. This is the good news of Jesus Christ. And as we gather to celebrate his birth, we cling to the hope of his promises and the assurances of eternal life. And while we remember the stories of Mary and Joseph and the shepherds and the wise men, Lord, give us the eyes to see our place in the Christmas story. And as we light these candles, Lord, may we sense the ways in which the light of Christ is penetrating the darkness of our lives, of our world. May we look for the ways in which your plan continues to unfold in our lives and for this world. It's in the name of Jesus we pray. Amen. In just a few minutes, we'll ask you guys to stand and we'll sing Silent Night, Holy Night. It's a song that takes us back to the year 1818. It was a church on a square in Austria, of all places. The organist and the young pastor were frantically searching for something to do after they realized that mice had chewed through the pipes in the organ, so the organ was inoperable. So quickly, on the spot, at the spur of the moment, they wrote a song that could be played on guitar, a song that celebrated the beautiful stillness of the night, silent night, holy night. So I'm going to ask that you stand. If you don't have a candle, we do have candles near the doors. We invite you to go take one. I'll start with the candle, and I'll light some candles up front. You'll take the candles, and then you'll pass them on. The lights will be dimmed in here, and you can see the ways in which the light overcomes the darkness. May it be a symbolic gesture of the ways in which Christ wants to overcome those dark corners of your life. Amen.
it up. Called to lift high the cross, lift high the flame. And you can see what a difference that makes as the light penetrates and overtakes the darkness. Pray that as we leave this place this morning, you'll carry with you, carry forth that light of Christ. No matter whom we encounter, they can see the light that burns brightly within us.